This is episode 152 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, Considering Diversity Training, Stop. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I'm so delighted to welcome a new guest to the show today, Natasha Oslis. And Natasha is with Science for Work. I think she's actually our third or fourth guest from the nonprofit organization Science for Work, which is an organization that I uh, fell in love with a few years ago. It's a an organization that attempts to bridge the gap between academic research and so-called practitioners. Uh, That's us who are out working in the field. And it's just a great mission and a great organization. So I'm thrilled to have another person affiliated with that organization with us today. And Natasha is a behavior change speaker, consultant, and researcher specializing in designing better workplaces. Yay! Yay! (laughs) She founded her own consulting firm, Neo Consulting, great name, (laughs) Thank you. 18 months ago to help companies combine science, data, and design to build better people strategies. And while finishing her PhD in organizational psychology at Western University in Canada, she has written pieces on new approaches to diversity and inclusion, trust in leadership, and virtual team collaboration. So welcome to the show, Natasha. Thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. I'm so excited to talk about such an important topic today. Yeah, so I should warn people uh, what we're going to talk about today is this whole idea of diversity training, because that, you know, given the events of the moment, I'm sure is exploding everywhere. I'm seeing lots of references to people trying to gear up their training in their organizations, whether it's private or public. And I think my listeners know, uh, when it comes to social psychology, I have been cautious about uh, sometimes implementing or attempting to implement some of the things that show up in the popular media. Because when you go back and look at the research that's behind those, it doesn't always say exactly what the headlines say. So Natasha is here today to help us figure out what we really know and what we don't know. So Natasha, why don't you just kick it off for us, if you don't mind, Mm -hmm. and just start out with what your experience has been with diversity training and some kind of big picture comments for us. Absolutely. So I've been doing um, work in this area for uh, over three years now, starting off with a big push we were having towards uh, focusing on diversity and inclusion in workplaces around 2016-17. A lot of uh, people were coming to the company I worked at and saying, you know, we 
have heard of this diversity training at the time, I think at least $8 billion was being spent on it in the U S yearly. And we want to know if that has any basis in, you know, behavior change as the company I was working at was really focused on implementing interventions that change behavior and use the principles of behavioral science and behavioral economics. So we started looking into it at that time. And we saw even then that there was very little support that the, training that people were doing, either overall diversity focus, which has been around for a couple decades, but the more recent implicit or unconscious bias training was actually leading to positive and lasting change in organizations. That was very minimal in terms of the evidence we had at the time. Mm -hmm. As people have been pulling this together, they've been learning more about what diversity training does shift, what it doesn't shift, and sometimes what the backfiring effects are. Mm -hmm. So to give a really quick overview um, of what we know so far, which is always evolving, implicit bias training and unconscious bias training tends to change people's intentions and attitudes a slight amount. So they'll say, oh, yeah, I intend to be less biased in my everyday life. I you know, have slightly pos- more positive attitudes towards uh, the diverse groups that we're learning about in these trainings. And that is great if those intentions translated over to behavior. Unfortunately, the effect that these trainings have on behavior is usually zero. Mm. Sometimes it changes behavior in the folks that are already supportive of these attitudes in the first place. So it sort of preaches to the choir, uh, so to speak, for people who were already really motivated to amp up maybe their mentoring of underrepresented groups. And that's a really nice kind of benefit, but we're usually trying to target the folks who don't already believe in these approaches and don't already hold uh, these attitudes. So it doesn't seem to change their behavior. And finally, some of the most saddening work that I've seen is the times when this bias training has actually backfired directly onto um, the non-white subordinates of leaders who've gone through this training in one example study. Um, But there are other examples where uh, this backfiring has led people to you know, really be angry at and, and feel shame, you know, coming from these trainings. So we can talk a little bit about the way that those are framed and how people respond to them. But ultimately, um, it's a lot more mixed and a lot more negative than what we're hearing when companies say, I'm going to invest in this. I'm going to shut down my whole stores to uh, conduct this training. I've done a little bit more work in the area of gender diversity Mm -hmm. training, and I was really surprised. Once I started looking into that, I was asked to write an article for Training Industry Magazine about Mm -hmm. that. And that's where, sort of similar to what you're seeing, I was really surprised to see some of the studies come out where men actually leave that training more angry at the women and more actually believing that some of these incidents that were presented in diversity training were actually the women's fault. Mm -hmm. And so that was a big aha moment for me that, as you say, be careful what you do because it, you know, it may not be completely ineffective. It just might be effective in a way that you don't want. (laughs) Absolutely. And this is why like, we really want to be tracking the impact of any changes we're making. Because if we don't even know this is having this backfiring effect or negative impact, we're going on our merry way thinking we meant well. We made this change in response to things going on inside and outside the organization. And it seems fine. But we have no idea what could be going on under the surface in terms of how people are responding and how that's changing their behavior towards women and other groups in the workplace. So it's really great that you know you you noticed maybe there's a difference between 
what we want to happen and what happens and what we intend um, and the way we really end up acting. Yeah, you mentioned the word shame. And that came mm-hmm. up in that research that I was doing for that article, that men would come out feeling under attack. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a really human response. And, and I can relate to it, too. If I were a guy sitting in a training and, you know, some woman comes in and starts shaking her finger at me, especially if I'm in a field like IT. So, I, you know, mm-hmm. I can completely relate to this. I have lots of clients who are IT people. They're very smart. They're very analytical. Somebody comes in and you have this quote unquote diversity training and she starts shaking her finger at you and saying, you need to hire more women. And you're sitting there thinking, well, it's a little bit complicated. You know, it's, I don't have that many candidates. And often, frankly, these female candidates aren't that good. And, and then the result is, it's not that I come out of that meeting like, oh, well, I actually come out of that meeting shamed. And I, you know, I think that's really a negative impact that we don't, maybe we can't measure it, but we should probably talk about it a little more is, you know, don't make people feel as though it's their fault, right? I'm not responsible Mm -hmm. for sexism in the society. I'm personally not responsible for racism in in our society. So yeah, what do you see happening with this shame? I think this is such a great point because the even overall approach of unconscious bias and implicit bias in this movement is that we've made it very much an individual thing Mm. that we all need to kind of individually focus on. But we can lose sight of the systemic behaviors and the ways that our organizations are designed that lead to these decisions, right? We're talking about each individual IT worker and overall employee in the organization being told it's your unconscious bias that's creating these systemic problems, right? Mm -hmm. And in some ways, we absolutely reinforce that and we want to change our behavior. But two ways that we can move away from this shame and blame approach that ends up alienating folks who we want to be allies is one, to take a behavior-based approach and two, to take a really more systemic and organizational design approach to things. And fortunately, there's actually ways we can make really practical and small changes to both of those approaches that can see progress even faster than focusing on our belief systems and on our internal biases that we know we all have and are actually very hard to change. So that's where I would go in terms of rethinking this to move away from the shame, but also to move towards more effective solutions. Yeah. So just to uh, harp on some things first, before we start talking about positive <laughs> things, I always, I always try and talk about positive things, but I've, I've got a head of steam up uh, here about this. Mm-hmm. So one of the, and this isn't particularly negative, but one of the things that happened, I don't know if you remember this, there was an incident mm-hmm. at Starbucks yeah. that w- was interpreted to be an example of bias on on mm-hmm. the part of some uh, Starbucks employees. And and whether it was or not, you know, you can debate. But regardless, Starbucks said, hey, okay, we think this could be a problem. They shut down for a whole day and they engaged in a bias training. And mm-hmm. it, it was very interesting to see the reactions of the employees because, of course, there were zillions of them. So there were lots of reactions that were made public. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, not to dump on Starbucks too bad, but but it did seem as though it wasn't particularly scientific. You know, they mm-hmm. hired some people who claimed to be experts, but when you dig into it, it's like, well, I'm not sure the science is really there. But one of the things that did seem to come out of it, which was positive, 
mm-hmm. and I'll ask your opinion on this, yeah. is just raising awareness. And so in my article, I said, well, it looks as though that could be a reasonable goal. Like employees came out of that trainee saying, you know, I guess I'm more enlightened now than I was before about what it's like to be black in America. Do you think that that's a useful thing? Should we encourage uh, trainers to, to go for that as a goal? Or what do you think? I think that can be one goal we work towards, um, but I wouldn't stop there because a lot of folks mm. do say awareness is the first step. So we sort of pat ourselves on the back. We created this awareness raising session. And unfortunately, when we're left with that, what we can end up doing as attendees and as people working in Starbucks is go, okay, so I feel more aware. I might in fact feel better about myself now that I think I understand that story and the journey is kind of over. Whereas when we kind of leave people to decide the actions they're going to take to change the environment, to change their behavior, we're putting a lot of the onus on them to actually make that change happen. And so I think awareness and listening to folk stories is extremely important, but I know we could have done more in those sessions if we take a look at what kind of behaviors should I do? What kind of if-then plans should I make? Like if I see two black men who are waiting for their friend in the store, first I'm going to ask them, are we waiting for anyone? Do you need anything? Instead of sort of immediately calling the police. Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot that. That was bad. Those, yeah. So it's those kind of associations and that if-then plan that we kind of had in our minds, it needs to be reworked. And in a safe place, like a training environment, we can start to practice and act out those behaviors to really decouple the automatic reactions that we're having. So awareness is great. Listening to stories is absolutely important. And I think, you know, within the whole day, there's so much we can do to change the patterns of behaviors that we're doing to practice having these difficult conversations with our employees in a place where we're all working towards the same goal and even creating some changes perhaps to our processes, perhaps to um, the way that our organizations, you know, hire people, train people, and let's look at the decisions being made in the company. And I think that if we did that in addition to awareness, so we focused on how do I change the kind of associations and plans I have for my behavior, but also how can we change uh, some of these systemic aspects that would really bring it from awareness to action. Okay. So that's a really good point. And I'm going to try and say that again and correct Mm -hmm. me if I get it wrong. So yes, training can raise awareness, but if you stop there, really, what's the point? Yeah. And so for me to say, yeah, that could be an effective goal for training well, yes, so what? I mean, why why would you spend money on that? Yes, that's definitely um, a really big part. And the reason that underlies us thinking training, uh, sorry, awareness is enough or training for awareness is enough is because we think that awareness is enough for changing our behavior. Mm-hmm. That if as long as we make people aware, as long as they listen to the story, that they're going to be able to overcome one, really ingrained habits and and things that we've learned through our society that are leading us to these kinds of unconscious biases. That two, we're going to be able to change the social pressures around us that sometimes shape the way we behave. And that we're really going to be, as individuals, able to push past all of these other forces just because we're aware. 
But now we know that's not enough because there's a lot that's keeping us you know, in this status quo and, and very complicit to the ways that our faces are designed and the way that we think we're going to act in front of other people. So you're absolutely right that it's not a good investment, I would say, to invest in just awareness-based training, whereas we have so much potential to be investing in things that change processes and decisions, things that change behavior, and get you know a better return out of that from a business perspective, but also from you know, a way that we're supporting our employees because we're now supporting their behaviors being changed, not just sort of having them listen to those stories. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And the other criticism that there was about the Starbucks training was it was kind of a PR effort, Mm -hmm. like, you know, just check the box. We did diversity training. Uh, we can just yeah. dust off our fingers and and we're we're done. We we've uh, done what we need to do. And so there was a criticism uh, because yeah. of that. And so let's get down into the nitty gritty a little bit. And I love how mm-hmm. you talk about behavior modification because that's what mm-hmm. my company works on for for training efforts. Mm-hmm. And it also I know it kind of goes back to my idea that it's not words that matter; it's your actions that matter. Yeah. And so. Uh, talk to us about real behavior modification training. What does that look like? Absolutely. And thank you for setting this up because at Science for Work, we actually published a piece um, on behavior modeling and it has sort of five essential components that we need to consider. So if we go through those um, really briefly, and I refer people to the Science for Work website to find out more, um, this is where we can actually design a training where people leave more likely to practice those behaviors on the job. So the components that we need are to actually demonstrate both the desired actions that we want and what we don't want. So it's great to know what good looks like, but it's also great to know what not to do and we can compare and contrast those. So a demonstration of the behaviors that we want, the way we should respond ideally in uh, a difficult situation or a situation that might have bias in it is crucial. Next, what we can do is practice both um, mentally rehearsing the way that we would act in a situation by really putting ourselves in that moment, but also practicing it out loud in teams, you know, with other people. Because it's one thing to say, you know, as walking away, oh, I should have said this, or I would have said this, or I wish that I had said this, but we can actually do it and sort of say it out loud, which is really powerful. So in a training that's focused on awareness, what we would be doing is probably sitting and listening. We're just absorbing that information. We're being lectured at. In a behavior-based training, what we're doing is getting up out of our seats. We're acting out these situations with other people. We're looking at real-life examples from our peers, and we can even generate the ideas of how I'm going to act. So those if-then plans that I talked about and you know, creating situations that are relevant to me and my work really personalizes the training. Whereas sometimes with awareness-based training, we're kind of telling everyone the same thing and thinking it's going to you know, resonate with each of us in our different roles, in the different kind of jobs that we have within an organization. So those are some of the elements um, with behavior-based training. But we want to go beyond to give people feedback We want to give, you know, have the trainer walk around and actually see whether people are practicing these behaviors in the way that helps them. And that's really going to be personalized and really action-oriented feedback. So these are all things that can help in the moment. And then after that training, we need to design, you know, the way we go back to the work by making it easier to practice those behaviors on the job. That's really going to transfer it from the classroom over to, you know, the boardroom and beyond. 
Okay, I'm going to ask you some tough questions here. So, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so brace yourself. Yes. I was interested mm-hmm. in diversity training in the realm of gender. Uh-huh. And so I started actually looking at this because the diversity training that we do that's mandatory by law now in California, uh-huh. even for companies as small as those that only have as few as uh, five employees or more. Uh-huh. And because the diversity training that I was observing was so terrible and really, uh-huh. you know, check the box and employees hate it and yeah. it seems counterproductive. There's so many things wrong with it. So I started looking into, okay. If you were serious about this and you wanted to have good gender diversity training, what would it look like? And I went to the same place that you've been telling us that examples work, role play is good, uh, having people individually practice seems to be more effective. But when I personally started looking at how you would set this up, it looked really hard because Uh it's so complicated and it has so much more to do with the individuals who are involved it's hard to do role play without it looking really gimmicky and fake. And then, you know, you fall into this trap of, well, if it's Joe, I don't care. He could rub my back all he wants. <laughs> you know, yeah. Well, yeah. So I should say what's re- we have ma- that relationship because yeah. we have that relationship. Yeah. So actually, so I should clarify here. Sorry. What, what I was actually talking about was sexual harassment training. <laughs> Because okay, that's right. what's mandated now in California. Mm-hmm. And and so I kind of gave up, actually. I, mm-hmm. I decided I can't figure out a way to make this work. And also, it's hard when you're in yeah. a group discussion and you're trying to talk about these really complicated interactions between individuals. I kind of felt like I'm not sure this is working. And and I'm very sensitive to the idea that it might backfire, that men yeah. might come out more uh, pissed off than they were when they walked in. So, so can you help us figure out how you would design such a training? And who who do you look to to do a good job? Absolutely. So I recognize there's so many ways in which it can seem, you know, not genuine, the the context is totally different, like we have all of these challenges coming in to play. And so sometimes when we're focusing to take the example of sexual harassment training, we're focusing on like, what should I do as the person experiencing it, and often we'll freeze in a situation like that. And we'll sort of blame ourselves, right? So we say, Mm -hmm. oh, how do we get empower people? And let's have this whole self-help aspect to change the way we're going to respond. But in the moment, we can't really expect how we're going to act. And especially if we're in a situation with so many other people, you know, a lot of folks who sadly been harassed on buses, on subways, there's like all these people around. You don't want to make a scene. Mm -hmm. So what we can do instead is sometimes change the target of who we're trying to train and think differently about what that training is going to achieve. So oftentimes um, the training that I've seen works before for sexual assault, sexual harassment training is training the bystanders. And sometimes that can be a little bit, it can take out the conversation of, well, this is my coworker and I know they're not going to be inappropriate to me. So I feel comfortable with them. How can we role play being strangers together when we're not? And it now focuses on what can the people around us do to empower them speaking up? It can still definitely feel awkward (laughs) and it can Mm -hmm. still definitely be weird. So what I like to look for is the folks who really start these kinds of trainings and who have this habit of really opening up the floor to you know, sharing those stories. So we start with a little bit of awareness and 
to be super cliche about this, Brene Brown is so great at talking about things like vulnerability and some of those difficult concepts. So to take some aspect of you know, putting us all into um, a moment where we first have a conversation where we share if we've ever seen someone, you know, look really uncomfortable in a situation where we didn't know whether we could help them or not. We kind of get out of sometimes the weird feeling of awkwardness by having conversation about some th things that we may have experienced from the bystander perspective where there's so many of those bystanders and it becomes about, you know, having them speak up and put themselves in between, you know, someone being inappropriate and the victim when we might freeze as one of those classic responses that's different from our fight or flight, but something we tend to do. So it's um, definitely difficult to design those aspects and to create role play scenarios, again, for everyone that'll be relevant to their workplace, be relevant to their experiences. If we can break out into groups, we can have people design their own situations like if they work in IT or they work in customer service, that might look different. So can we personalize it a little bit more? Can we start off with a conversation to reflect back on an opportunity we may have had and how we do that differently can really help us to um, make it a little bit less strange. But even then, you know, it's a tough, it's a tough thing to design. And I defer to folks who have a lot more great facilitation experience than I do. <laughs> Yeah. So is there anybody that you look to? You mentioned, you mentioned a name there, Benet Brown. Yeah. So she does a lot of like bigger speaking stuff, but as an inspiration to kind of what elements I would put into um, a training, like her conversations around vulnerability and the way that she kind of phrases things to be very much not about shame and to bring everyone together to have those kind of common um, conversations that share our humanity. I think that's a really great example of what she does. You know, working with participants to develop these trainings can really help to see like what would feel weird for them and like what works kind of for the people who are in your organization. So sometimes it ends up being a very collaborative effort, which could be the best way to approach it. Yeah, there's something intuitively that feels right about having people look at the problem more objectively. Like if if I were a bystander or if this person here was a bystander, what could he or she do? Somehow that mm -hmm. feels intuitively, that feels more natural to me than trying to set up a role play, which it just gets very awkward and very weird. And Absolutely. I, I just have to question whether or not that's effective or not. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, you know, it would definitely be, you know, strange for the person who's pretending to aggress on you and you're like mm -hmm. pretending to be in the situation. And one principle that really um, helps us understand when training can be helpful is, will I be in the same sort of mental and emotional state when I'm in this situation? So for example, you know, I don't know how I would react if I maybe like won a marathon because I was the fastest one because I don't run marathons, but two, because there's adrenaline, I'm going to be exhausted. Like I have sure. no idea how I'm going to feel. So for example, in a situation where I am anticipating or trying to get myself into the mindset of being in a, a place where I'm being harassed, I have no idea how I'm going to react. I'd love to say that I'm going to run away or scream out or punch the person or do whatever, but let's be honest, I probably would freeze. I would probably feel awkward about making a scene and that's going to make it hard for me to train that. So can we train something where the feeling you're in in the training is 100% opposite from the feeling you're in later on? That would be 
quite impossible. Mm-hmm. So your point about the bystander is because the bystander is not, you know, the target in the situation, they are not necessarily going to be in a freezing situation. They're going to be pretty neutral, like either way. They're going about their day in the training. They're going about their day in real life when they mm-hmm. encounter it. So can we help them to be in the right kind of state of mind and the same state of mind when we practice and then when they go on to use these behaviors in real life? So that's probably a little bit of what's giving you that inkling. Like it makes more sense to focus on the bystander. <laughs> One, mm-hmm. because creating this artificial situation doesn't make as much sense um, and is weird for both the person committing this crime and the person on the receiving end, but also because if we think about those mental states and whether I'm in like a hot state where I'm influenced by the things around me and how I'm feeling, or whether I'm in a cold kind of neutral and you could say more rational state, that'll really play a role as to whether we can transfer those behaviors. Yeah. And just to draw the parallel Mm -hmm. back to racism at work, Mm -hmm. I've certainly heard very similar stories from people as to when they're being sexually harassed, there's often this belief that we will react to a racist comment or a sexist comment or some kind uh-huh. of aggression, either for your gender or for uh-huh. or for the color of your skin, that will re, you know will be totally logical and will lash back with this super great you know comment. back yeah come in we'll yeah. put that person in their place, and instead, often what happens in real life is. We're just so shocked and so hurt and so victimized that, yeah, yeah that, they, that we uh, can't react well uh, to that. Absolutely. And there's so much that, you know, the power dynamics come into play. So I'm reminded of a situation that intersects both um, the harassment that you're talking about, but also race, where Terry Crews shared that he didn't feel uh, comfortable speaking up against an aggressor who had harassed him because he felt that this person was more powerful in the entertainment business, that, you know, they had this privilege of being white and male, and he didn't want to be that kind of aggressive black man really playing into a stereotype. And so Mm -hmm. he felt very constrained by both, you know, the stereotypes and expectations of him as a person, but also not feeling like he could speak up without there being this kind of backlash and retribution. So this is where someone else outside of the situation can come in and speak up if they see it or if the trusted, you know, friends can speak up on your behalf. It can help because they're a bit farther away from the situation. And so him sharing that experience that even the most, you know, strongest and, you know, perhaps most, you know, menacing or or capable person to speak up and feel powerful because of the dynamics of the situation won't feel that way. They'll feel victimized, just like all the rest of us who aren't extremely muscular and that that actually has nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm, Right. Has nothing to do with it. Yeah, for Mm -hmm. sure. So let's go back here to training for a moment, because one of the things that I worry is happening all over the country and I can't stop it, is that people are using the implicit uh, bias test. Mm -hmm. Implicit association test is what I should call it, the IAT. Yes. uh, Which has now been taken, I guess, by millions and millions of people. And as part of my uh, learning about 
some of these social psychology studies, and the, my listeners may remember that I did an episode with a, a social psychologist who was who really has taken it upon himself to kind of debunk all these uh, studies that are out there. Mm-hmm. That unfortunately, once they're unleashed, kind of go off in the world and take on a life of their own. Even when their Absolutely. own original researcher is saying, "Stop! You're misinterpreting. <laughs> this is not wait. What are you doing?" And so this IAT. I was just totally astonished. It again shows that I was uh, kind of out of it. I didn't realize that this IAT had spread everywhere and millions of people have taken it. And allegedly the race version of it is supposed to tell you just how biased you are as if someone, as if something that complicated could be reduced to a test, which is, mm-hmm. is kind of my problem. I often read about the design of these tests and the conclusions that are drawn from it. It's like, what on earth? So this strange test, if I understand it right, has you pressing keys in response to either white faces or black faces, and you're supposed to press certain keys that have positive associations or negative associations, and they switch it up on you. So uh, at some point during the test, you're supposed to make positive associations with black faces or positive association with white faces. And then what the test does is, and I hope you're all laughing now out there in the world, and it's supposed to test how quick you are. And so if you're slow to associate positive words with black faces, that means you're biased. And so the study, I mean, this all is right up your alley, that what the, mm-hmm. what the, some of the criticism of this has been that it doesn't, no matter how you score on this test, it doesn't associate behaviors with it. So that's one problem, right? It's like, okay, now I have a score. What does that really do if it doesn't manifest itself in my day-to-day actions? What what does that really do for you? Does awareness really do anything positive for you? If I come up with a bad score, bad me, I'm a bad person and, and racist. But the second thing that bothered me the most about this test is that it's not consistent. And this is, you know, this replication problem that we have in social psychology has really, mm-hmm. to me, become quite catastrophic. But even for this little test, you don't get the same score if you take it two weeks later, you get a different score. Mm-hmm. So help me out with the IIT. So what I worry is that what is going to happen is uh, the consultants are going to come in, the companies are going to say, okay, the first thing we need to do is give everybody an IIT test. So what do you think about this? Is this bad, good? What's your reaction to all this? Should we use that test at all or should we just do something different? So great questions and and very great explanation of the test. So you are looking at associating this category, good, bad, and then we see how fast we can respond as the different faces come up on the screen. There's similar tests with um, family, career, and gender, many different ways we can associate good and bad with a different weight, uh, different sized people as well. So that Mm. is the overall approach of the test there. And one thing that I want listeners to take away from this is to recognize that Here's the overall statistics. Over 70% of people are biased towards white faces and away from black faces. What that tells me and what we know to be true from behavioral science overall is we're picking up on the kinds of associations that we're being taught over our whole lifetime. We're learning these kinds of associations. So to me, to make this again an individual thing, like you are 50% biased or your score is X, 
it's taking it out of the context that we are constantly being bombarded with certain kinds of associations, not exactly in the form of the test, but in media and all of these representations of black and white faces all the time. So what we know is that this is a systemic thing. And when it gets brought down again to be an individual problem, it's putting that focus to me at the wrong level, right? So many training, unconscious bias training, start with the IIT and it's supposed to have this window into our soul. But ultimately, <laughs> our <it> soul. Can, <laughs> I know. I mean, maybe that's a little unscientific, but <laughs> no, it seems like that's what it's trying to do, right? Is tunnel into your brain and and screw yeah, in there and ha ha, I found this. <laughs> and and the the lack of relationship, the real difference there between your you know implicit behavior that again is if it's shared by almost three quarters of the population tells you something about the whole population, it becomes, you know, detached from the behaviors that you do. And when we start to reflect on ourselves, which everyone is doing when they're receiving these scores and they're in these trainings, they're paying attention, they go, okay, so I don't act like X, but you're telling me I'm biased implicitly like X. So what am I supposed to do about this? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It creates this tension that in many trainings doesn't get resolved because we're not focusing on the actual way we're treating others. We're saying like these tiny little implicit unconscious under the radar things are manifesting themselves in ways that you cannot understand and we're not gonna talk about. The problem is that doesn't give me a lot of autonomy to then go and do something about it, especially because knowing about any kind of bias doesn't actually reduce your chance of showing that. Not only a racial bias, but any kind of cognitive bias that your brain has actually hardwired into it Knowing does not, it's not half the battle. It's like less than 5% of the battle because it doesn't change your behavior. So this is where the IIT could actually be leading us in a wrong direction, not only because it has these issues with being uh, consistent, but also predictive of our behavior, but we're really focusing on solving or trying to solve a systemic problem at the individual level. And we know that our individual behaviors are but one piece of this whole puzzle where there are existing, you know, legal structures, there's political aspects, there's, you know, differences in funding and, you know, hiring and promotion and retention organizations. These are the kinds of things that folks want us to take action on. If we're focused on taking our IOT and talking about how we individually are or not unconsciously biased, we're not giving the attention to these higher order things that need to be fixed. There's a lot more discussion now about these kind of systemic decisions that we can change both politically and in organizations, but the IAT and anything individually focused is not bringing us closer to that idea. That's a really fantastic point that I'm, I'm kind of surprised I hadn't thought of this myself is that depending on how you're raised or where you're raised, even anywhere across the globe, this implicit bias test, to the extent that it works at all, is of course going to reflect your upbringing. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're racist. You know, that that you will have certain associations depending on what your experience has been. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And what makes me so sad about this is that um, one other finding overall from the IAT is that many Black and African-American folks are found to be biased against their own group. Mm -hmm. As well, this shows us the pervasive aspect of these kinds of narratives and associations where 
we're all seeing the news and we're all seeing, you know, mug shots being associated with the bad being right. people of darker skin. So that's something that black boys and girls are growing up with. And then they exhibit these biases. So to conclude that your sort of individual behavior or beliefs are racist from the test is problematic by the very example of people who are being oppressed in society also feel like white is good, right? It's not that mm -hmm. only white people are saying white is good. And this is where, again, it's so pervasive and systemic because we see that across groups. And like you said, your, your upbringing has so much to do with it because everyone in our society and sort of North American and Western society is taught these things, including the people who are being you know, prejudiced against themselves as well. So this is really another nail in the coffin to say, like, we need to take a different approach. And fortunately, there's ways that we can design our processes and decisions differently. But we do have to think about the context. We do have to think about the higher level than just me as an individual and my implicit associations. Would it be fair to mm -hmm. say that if a consultant comes into your company and the first thing that they want to do is give everybody an IAT test, uh, should you uh, invite them to leave? I would, I would recognize that they mean well, but I definitely would be looking for someone who is going to take a behavioral-based approach and going to look at the actual processes we have in our, our organization. So, you know, I would feel uncomfortable asking them to leave directly, but it might be <laughs> the best thing if their whole toolkit is kind of wrapped around the idea of these implicit associations. Um, because educating folks on their biases and this awareness overall, it's not enough. So I don't think the money spent on them would, would really be worth it. Okay, good. Thank you for a very good, <laughs> clear answer. And I think in the materials that you sent me, you have a couple of catchphrases that I just want to repeat here. For sure. We've been talking about this, but but I think, you know, just to kind of have a sound bite here. Yes. So knowing about diversity slash our biases is enough to make us unbiased. Therefore, for changing outcomes. So that's a fallacy. That's one of the myths that is kind of, assum the assumption is knowledge is enough to change these outcomes. We just need to be aware, we need to be informed, we need to be educated. It's not enough. And it's very hard for folks to understand that. Knowledge is not enough, awareness is not enough. And it's not even a real step in the right direction such that it actually is changing our behavior, that it's sufficient. It's like, just not enough to say, I walked away from this training, I'm aware. Now I'm going to really reliably change my behavior. It's not going to happen. That's definitely a myth. Yeah, not going to happen. <laughs> okay, good. And then uh, the other one that you have here, which I'm not sure we've explored as much as yeah. we could, and that is that training, this is a myth again, mm -hmm. uh, that training is the quote unquote first step toward better inclusion and diversity. So tell us about more, more about that. Absolutely. So um, for many companies, as we're seeing right now, and we've seen in the past few years, their first response is to do training, especially in conscious bias training, diversity training, racism training. The problem is the training is not the first step that's you know, moving us closer towards changing the actual behaviors that we want to be changed. So on an individual level, if it's individual people's behaviors that we can change, there is a way that we've already discussed a bit to do, you know, behavior-based training. But unfortunately, what we 
really need to look at is the practices and organization and we have to design those practices. That sounds way bigger. That sounds way more difficult. Mm -hmm. However, what we're seeing from some other dimensions of behavioral science that are not the IIT and other kinds of research like that, what we're seeing is that really small changes can make a bigger impact than you think. Some of those small changes include changing the decisions that we're making in our hiring process, changing the way that we word our job descriptions, changing the way that we structure our performance evaluations. All of these aspects can be very small tweaks. For example, on a job description, we can say we encourage people who don't meet every single qualification to apply. And then we can actually uh, encourage folks who don't have that arrogance or self-confidence uh, to also be a part of our application pool. Mm. We can change the wording from things like, you have to be a ninja star, amazing, you know, genius. <laughs> I hate those. <laughs> which I know happens so much, especially probably in Silicon Valley. And we can say, we're looking for people to collaborate on interesting problems to achieve these kind of goals and stuff, because ultimately, you know, we are collaborating and it's not just about being a lone wolf kind of genius person hero. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. God help the manager was to manage that person. <laughs> exactly. And there's this real myth that we're already doing as much as we can, that everyone it, who wants to apply and work at our company is applying, that there's no barriers for different folks to join your company. But that is the biggest myth that we haven't unintentionally put up different barriers to the full participation of all these groups in our society. We have barriers that we can remove. And as we start to audit those, to explore them without training, but really with a deep look at our own procedures, there's mm -hmm. so much potential there for us to continuously make these iterative changes to test how they're doing and to improve. There's a lot of small tweaks that adding up together can make a big impact because they are attracting different people. They are sharing, you know, our company's actual behaviors and values with uh, the folks who would be interested in us. And they're making more accurate decisions as a part of hiring performance management and all these other processes and organization. So training is not the first step and training is not getting us closer to changing the decisions to make them more objective, to making our processes stronger and more resilient, and to ultimately making a more equitable workplace. Yeah, that certainly resonates with me as a manager, the idea that we would actually look seriously at our statistics. Mm -hmm. I always am amazed at how people don't review their own data of, mm -hmm. and look for examples of of bias or discrimination. Mm -hmm. The numbers are right there. They don't lie. Yeah. It, you know, at least look at those and analyze those. And then if you do see that there does seem to be a pattern, and I've talked about this in other podcasts, so I won't bore my listeners with that, but, <laughs> the, but there are clear, often clear statistical proof that you mm -hmm. are discriminating against women in your pay. That often mm -hmm. is something that's fairly easy to show inside organizations. Yeah. And once you see that, then you can start working on why through, as you say, your processes, your procedures, what's really happening? What are examples where decisions are being made that go a man's way instead of a woman's way? So that all resonates great with me. I'm glad to hear. And there's so much we can do with that to start and understand the intersectional experience across the pay gap that folks are starting to look at, but also looking at how uh, different 
women and different groups of women are sort of being paid differently as well based on the way that they've been pushed into different kinds of roles. And so it's so, it really opens up these avenues for us to look at our own data to then dig into what are the root causes of those differences that might exist and what are those funnels looking like. If we're going to achieve some of the discussion that's been happening um, after the George Floyd incident, we need to look at the pipelines to our senior leadership. People are saying we're going to double our senior leadership representation um, of Black folks and Indigenous people of color. So where's the pipeline? Like, where's the funnel? We need to be looking at all those other stages before, because if not, how are we actually going to make this change happen and make it more than just words? Okay, I'm going to ask another tough question. For sure. So knowing all this, you know, now that we're super smart, unfortunately <laughs> what happens is you get kind of the mob approach to this and people start beating the drum, training, training, training. You need implicit bias training. Uh, where's your diversity training? And so how do you help a leader now who's listened to this and is is super smart who says, you know, it's flawed, it's not going to do what we want it to do, but I've got all this political pressure on me to do something. What, what would you suggest that they do? Absolutely. An excellent question. We definitely are looking for folks to do something. And the first you know, knee-jerk reaction is often to do that training. What I would love to see people respond in a framework that can help them is thinking, what are the actions that we need to take? What are the data that we need to collect? And what are the people that we want to involve in developing these solutions? If we think of these three things, then it's possible for us to respond, not only with the reasons we're not doing that training, but here's what we're doing instead. And here's a three-pronged approach that we're involving people in designing our solutions, that we're gathering the necessary data to know more about the problem, and that we're reviewing the ways that we've reached those data as our end goal. Uh, I think that will really help because ultimately what folks are calling for when they're beating that drum is they're calling for action mm -hmm. and they're calling for change. So as long as we're changing in the right direction and we're involving the people that we mean to help along with us to hear their input on the, the solutions that we're creating, that's where we're going to have the most impact. And I don't expect there'll be too much backlash for a, a solution or a, an action plan of that nature. But if anyone has any issues, do reach out. We can <laughs> work on this together. Um, but ultimately, that will be showing the action that you're taking. You're basing that on evidence and you're keeping the important groups uh, aligned with what you're working on. That's really great. And I can hear already thousands of employees <laughs> out there in a big roar of applause because they don't have to go to this stupid diversity <laughs> training. And that's one of the things I notice is, you know, listen to your employees yeah. when they tell you that something is horrible and they hate it and they do everything in their power to get out of it. It's because the training <laughs> sucks. It, you know, there's a reason that they don't want to go to these trainings. It's a waste of time and it's irritating. So mm -hmm. yeah, I can hear them all out there <laughs> in a giant round of applause for, uh, for your advice. So Thank when, you, Jennifer. Yeah. Yeah, I know that. They'll, they'll love that because I see a lot of people say, you know, I've been scheduled for this kind of training, whatever it is, diversity, sexual harassment, mm -hmm. bias training, and they hate it. And then they say, what can I do to make it productive? Like, what you know, yes. what? Because it's bad and irritating. 
and a waste of time. Is there any way I can contribute to this conversation in a way that is actually helpful, that will actually move my organization forward? And I'll just mention here, I think that's often a misconception is that the employees who don't want to go to these trainings that there's something wrong with them, that yeah. they're biased, they're sexist, they're racist. And my experience is that's not true. Often mm-hmm. those critics really do have the best interests of the underprivileged group at heart. They really do mm-hmm. want to make things better, but they recognize that these dumb check-the-box trainings or awkward or just yeah. <laughs> aren't the aren't the right <laughs> aren't the right approach. Before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you about one thing that you mentioned here in your email to me, this idea about moral licensing. What is that? (laughs) So great question. Uh, Moral licensing, as Jennifer and I were talking about earlier, is the idea that if I do one thing good, that gives me a free pass to go ahead and do something else bad later. So in the context Mm. of, you know, dieting, let's say I had a salad and I was really healthy. So then I'm like, foraging on chocolate cookies later on, right? Because I had a cell, so I'm a healthy person. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And this happens. I've definitely done it. You know, it's something that one action that's good can kind of give us the brownie points, pun intended, to actually do something bad later on. And this comes into play in so many different areas. So we see examples of this within sustainability. For example, I recycle. So I'm going to go and buy a Hummer and that's fine because I'm a good person. I recycle, right? Mm -hmm. There's one thing that we did that's good, but the net effects can sometimes be um, a negative. The same approach can happen in the realm of diversity, specifically with training, but also with other policies in an organization. One example that I remember is that an organization that had a large pay gap for women the women in the organization said, well, it's okay because the company said they're committed to diversity. So they didn't identify this as a bias and they didn't identify the problem with it because, well, the company told us that they're committed to this. So must be some other reason. Yeah. So sorry, I, I take <laughs> yeah. it back that that was my last question. No, no, no. I, ask yeah, more. <laughs> yeah, sorry. So I mentioned that we had an episode last week, actually with another Canadian, must be Canadian, oh, uh, Canadian period here on the <laughs> podcast. Uh, and we were talking about these mandatory diversity statements that are proliferating, mm-hmm. particularly in academia, where people are being su- asked to, or mm-hmm. forced really, uh, to sign a pledge and uh-huh. you mentioned that this that there's also similar verbiage uh, on job descriptions. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? The intention with uh, a lot of mandated statements at the bottom of job descriptions, and this is a very compliance-based um, approach that we, you and I have been talking about this whole time, it's really the intention to have a job statement that says, we encourage all people to apply. We do not discriminate you know, on these different attributes because by law, we're not allowed to. The problem is that that is often a well-wishing statement, but not the reality. (laughs) And so one example um, of a recent study that was done by my colleague, Sonia King at the Rotman School, University of Toronto, they looked at jobs that had a diversity statement, equal opportunity statement at the bottom, and jobs that did not have that statement. Would those kinds of jobs discriminate just as much against people who have cues of race that is not white on their resume. So both um, 
cues of people's Asian heritage through their name and through their um, extracurriculars and different clubs they're part of, but also cues of their African-American or Black heritage on their resume. We know that resume screeners and hiring managers can pick up on these cues. The jobs that had an equal opportunity statement, similar to one like, we do not discriminate against people based on their age, gender, ethnicity, creed, et cetera, et cetera, they were just as discriminatory in practice. Of course. Mm -hmm. So their behavior had nothing to do with what they promised. And the problem is that this backfired for applicants. Oh. Because applicants read these statements, they believe them as, you know, you think the company is practicing what it preaches. And they're more likely to be honest on their resume about their background and their cultural heritage. So they don't whiten their resume by changing their name to a more English sounding name or changing their name to a more Caucasian sounding name. They don't do that when they have this statement. So this is a double whammy. Oh, yeah. Because you have applicants who you may say as a company you're trying to reach, you're like, why doesn't our applicant pool have more diversity? But Mm -hmm. what you've done with your statement is push folks to be more honest, thinking this is a place that values diversity. They will value me. I can be honest with myself and really show who I am. And then, bam, they're actually more likely to be rejected uh, for the interview. Ow. So it's really, you know, painful because they're more likely to uh, remove some of those cues on the resume for a job that doesn't have a diversity statement and then more likely to be, you know, accepted to the interview thinking that they are Caucasian. So it's very sad on so many levels because Mm -hmm. this gave the company license to think we're a good company. We say we don't discriminate, so we probably don't do it. Unfortunately, they do. And then we're a good company. We're attracting these people. And, you know, that's because we have the statement, but really we're penalizing them from going to the next stage. Uh, And this is a way that both the moral licensing, but also the the signal of Mm -hmm. being a diversity focused company can end up backfiring both for the applicant and for the organization. Wow, that's very eye-opening. Yeah, thank you for bringing that to our attention. Yeah, that's that's yeah. uh, it's really heartbreaking as you say on on multiple levels and sounds like a fascinating area for research absolutely and the the next step of course is now that we know this exists and there's actually been 25 years of research consistently showing a gap um, from application to interview for the identical resume that has an african-american name on it what we are seeing is now a lot more research on how we can actually fix these issues. So fortunately, uh, looking at those processes, the decisions that are being made, the criteria that we're using to make their decisions can actually change for the better uh, the people that we're bringing into an organization. Because the identical resume with a name that is stereotypically Black on it is still an identical resume, right? That person is still just as qualified, um, but they're not making it through to the tune of 30 to 40% gaps in uh, the likelihood of getting an interview. Well, I'll just say again, you know, this is what I think is so beautiful about research and statistics and data. I'm bashing on uh, social psychology here over uh, the past year or so, but, but this is, but But the reason that I get so resentful of that is because those studies are flawed. But there are good studies out there and good research that's done in this area that really can help us make the world better. And that's one of the reasons I'm such a big fan of Science for Work, because I I do think that they help bridge that gap between what 
good, solid work that's done out there and how we can bring that into work. Absolutely. So there's my little plug again for uh, for science for our work. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. And so, uh, Natasha, is there anything that you'd like to share with the listeners? How can they can follow your work or uh, resources you direct them to or really anything you'd like to share with them? Absolutely. Um, And thank you again for the opportunity to speak to your amazing listeners on such an important topic. Folks can find me on LinkedIn at Natasha Oslis. My Twitter handle is also just my uh, full name, Natasha, and then O-U-S-L-I-S, both S's as in Sam. Uh, Mostly you can find my um, articles posted on on LinkedIn and Twitter there, but also have a website, natashaoslis.com. And what the goal is, you know, with Science for Work and all other um, endeavors that I'm working on at this time is really to bring that most high quality evidence for everyone working in organizations to make it more accessible, to make it more understandable, to make it a hell of a lot shorter and easier to read. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And hopefully that, you know, will really empower folks to make uh, those better decisions in their companies. We have such an opportunity right now as lots of people are rethinking how their workplaces are going to look when we come back uh, to work in person. And we have this chance to do things like design uh, team-based organizations, like a recent talk that I spoke about is working on that. We can build our collaboration and communication skills virtually because we know we're going to need them Uh, some of our workers are still going to be remote. And we have this opportunity to improve the way that we're approaching diversity and inclusion to make these changes and not just to have these statements that we think are enough, because ultimately, uh, we just don't want that backfiring. Yeah, well, thank you so much for your positive messages today and the work that you do and for coming on the show. Of course, Jennifer, I'm a cautious optimist, so I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Yeah, good. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.